Last year, we talked about science fiction fandom in Australia in the 1950s. And the convention has allowed us to come back and talk about Australian science fiction fandom in the 60s. This is part of a project I have to write the history of Australian science fiction fandom up until... It's not Isn't it working? Uh, it might need to switch it on. No, it is on. It is on. It's just it was, I don't think it I'm not holding it close enough. Oh, that's it. Now I can hear. All right. Okay. We're all old. I'll say it all again. I'm not going to say it all again. And basically, this um, program item is about Australian science fiction fandom in the 1960s. Uh, the point of this um, panel is to uh, create a sort of a sense of feeling of what it was like to be a science fiction reader in Australia. Um, in the 1960s, which we were discussing before, most of us can't remember. <laughs> so we can invent. So let me introduce the panel: Rob Durand, uh, Bon Vivant, uh, well known around certain business circles of Australia. Lovely picture of you at the top of the tower at um, the, uh, the Art Centre. Art Centre. Uh, um, Lee Harding, uh, famous for being Lee Harding, and a well, probably one of the earliest uh, science fiction writers in Australia, and Bill Wright, who's famous for being Bill Wright. <laughs> and then, of course, Lee Edmonds, the well-known Gathiot, who's come back to science fiction and science fiction fandom to write a history of the place. So what we want, we're going to talk about, given the, the time we've got, we're going to cover four, five areas that we'd like to discuss in some detail. And the first of them is the state of science fiction in Australia around about 1960 what it was like, what you could read, um, and what the environment was like. Um, the first thing we need to understand is that before 1960s, before 1960, a lot of science fiction was banned, not banned in Australia, you simply couldn't get into Australia because of government import embargoes. So Lee was telling us before about what it was like when the embargo was lifted. So Lee, can we start there? Yes, the embargo was on American imports, and uh, it wasn't lifted until the early 60s. So our only access to the real science fiction from the US was via book suppliers in England. You could get it from England and it was called Operation Fantastic. It was run by a, a military person who was living in Germany. I don't know how he managed it, but it was one of his... Uh, Things. And he, he got all the latest American magazines because fans would arrange to send them over to him um, and he would pay for them and he could then send them to us. Uh, his name was Edward John Carnell, later to edit New World and Science Fantasy. And it was Ken Slater. Ken Slater. No, no, it was quite... Not... Ken Carnell was the editor of you. No, no, Carnell also ran that kind of thing along with uh, Slater. So you're not entirely wrong there. Yeah. But Ken Slater was uh, Operation Fantast. But John Carnell also sold books. That's right. Yeah. And he also sold books. Um, so uh, the fans at that time were very aware of overseas fandom because uh, a number of them a small number, were in contact with these American fanzine publishers. And American fanzines in those days were mainly for fun. You know, you put them out to share your ideas, your opinions, and to rubbish, rubbish each other's. And 
The Australian fans are very taken with this because the Sydney fans are very serious. You know, science fiction was literature and you don't... There's no place for fun. Um, I, when I later went on to publishing fanzines myself, uh, I called the publishing operation Fandom is for Fun. And I don't think that has changed. We celebrate our enthusiasm for a genre. And that is our main person, uh, our purpose, sharing that enthusiasm. Uh, when the American embargo lifted, there was an explosion of science fiction in the bookshops throughout Melbourne. I can't speak for Sydney. Um, I remember walking into what was in a technical book company. Some of you here may remember that. Uh, and the front display was shelf, shelf, shelves of ace double paperbacks. Uh, these were two novels published back to back in paperback format. And of course, these had been dumped. Uh, by the American publishers here. And, you know, we, we... And all the magazines became available then. And, and the interest just spread. Uh, certainly the, the membership of the Australian Science Fiction Group, which was formed a few years before this, grew and um, became active. You know, people started publishing fanzines here. And among them there was... Who published fanzines here? Oh, well... Was well, that you? No, no. We, 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 oh, John Baxter. Yeah. John Baxter. I need to... Um, um, I want to come back to that. That's point three. Um, can we talk... Can you talk a little bit about... Because you aspired to be a writer? Oh, yes. So tell us a little bit about what it was like to get published. In oh, what was it like to get published then? Well, I, I gatiated from uh, the Melbourne Science Fiction Club... Uh, in the middle of the 50s because I wanted to concentrate my career as a photographer and in the meantime write some stories and get published. Uh, I, I sent the first story off to John Carnell who was at the New Worlds at the time uh, and it wasn't successful but he said, you know, keep sending me stories. I did that for five years <laughs> and sometimes I would get a little note uh, yeah, not too, not bad, but not right, you know. Think about it. And of course, there came the glorious day when I sold my first story, which was in um, late '59. Interestingly, it was called Displaced Person. And anyone who knows my work will know that many years later, I took the same theme and wrote a short novel based on it, um, which was very successful for me. Uh, but the Writer, the thing that distinguished the 60s was there was not just myself writing, but John Baxter started in Sydney and started selling stories to the same market. The only markets we had at that time were New World and Science Fantasy, both edited by John Carnell in um, England. Although there was one exception, the Sydney fan Doug Nicholson sold a story to Galaxy. His only published fiction. Uh, apparently he was paid in, all, in a lot of back issues of Galaxy magazine because we couldn't get them here. <laughs> uh, which is a nice story. It was called Far From the Warming Sun. But uh, he hasn't published anything since that, that I know of. But, and at the same time in Melbourne, Damien Broderick published his first story, which he later 
expanded into a novel, The Sea's Furthest End, I think it's called. So at last we had professional writers in the country, which was who were also very Spanish. <laughs> uh, yeah, which is the way these things usually start. Can uh, we, so the sense of community amongst this little group of writers, you knew each other? Yeah, we all knew each other, and we are all friends, and uh, John, of course, was president in Sydney. Damien lived mysteriously. <laughs> you never sort of knew where he was, but he was mainly based in and around Melbourne. And, of course, Damien has gone on to his own, own glory, you know, in the US. Uh, he doesn't write... Well, he is still writing occasional fiction, but it was the pure science and the, the paranormal which, you know, got his main interest. And he's been over in the States for many years. Uh, so, so we had the beginning of a more advanced sort of fandom... Uh, the writers didn't talk about writing, you know, they just fanned like everybody else. <laughs> can, can we move on, and can I get you other two to talk about this? Um, in the, what, 66, yeah. science fiction changed with what was called at that stage the new, wo- new wave. Ah, yes. Can, um, Rob? In terms of the um, access to different sorts of science fiction, um, I used to get a British edition of Galaxy that Strato Publications put together um, of bits and pieces of different Galaxy issues. And by the early 60s, the US edition was available, so I was able to buy as a 13- or 14-year-old uh, copies of Galaxy and IF and F and SF and Analogue, um, which were on the newsstand in my local milk bar, local newsagent, and New Worlds from England with science fantasy. And then about 67, I think... Judith Merrill had published a book called English Swing, England Swing SF, because um, with the whole counterculture erupting all around the place, including in Australia, it affected the SF world as well. And a lot of writers wanted to break out of a straitjacket that either existed or didn't exist according to how they thought about the publishing opportunities. And John Campbell at Analogue certainly had a very narrow view of what he wanted to publish had to do with ESP or the Dean Drive or maybe Scientology and a few related topics. But um, Michael Moorcock in New Worlds took over the editorship from John Carnell. He published a novel by an American, um, Bug Jack Barron, which I think the British Council was giving some money to New Worlds at the time and they immediately cancelled that support because (laughs) of the um, so-called obscenity in that novel. But uh, it was a flowering of um, different opportunities for writers. Galaxy and FNSF were publishing what could be called new wave stuff as well as traditional science fiction anyhow, but it certainly meant that a whole lot of writers were encouraged to write stuff about what Ballard called inner space as much as outer space. Uh, I think it's important to, to say that, that that particular time that... Moorcock revitalised science fiction, which was also called the swinging 60s, you know. It was the Beatles. It was all that. It was a time of regeneration. And the certainly what Moorcock did with New Worlds had always been a seasoning of literary writing in science fiction. Very rare, the best example from the pulps is Theodore Sturgeon, a mostly forgotten writer, who wrote about people 
not science. People affected by something scientific. And that introduced a new element. But what's more complicated with is he wanted to broaden the platform for science fiction. So a lot of the stuff he published was really way out, wasn't it, as we used to say in those days. It was experimental. It was dynamic. There'd been nothing like it before. And it, it, it influenced a huge number of American writers, standard American science fiction writers, uh, who realised there was more ways to tell a story. In fact, um, people like Brian Aldiss wrote stuff that they normally wouldn't have had able to be published, such as Barefoot in the Head. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, another novel, name which I forget, but it was... About Barefoot about, in the Head? No, it was about a portrait and different ways of looking oh, at it. Oh, Report on Probability. Yeah, Report on Probability, probability A. And um, yes, impenetrable to this day, but um, <laughs> much admired for that. You haven't, weren't taking enough drugs. <laughs> <laughs> Probably true. I... Um, I'll receive the proof pages of a book of Brian's, which was ultimately, uh, which is, which at the time was called An Age in the British edition, which is, was later called Cryptozoic with an exclamation point in the paperback edition. Uh, he'd sent the pages out because Brian was in very close mail correspondence with John Bankson and myself and probably much more. And he sent the pages to us because he'd, he said... Lee, I feel I'm putting cosmetics on a corpse. <laughs> and, you know, he was, you know, uh, he, he'd lost... Since then, he's probably learned, as most writers know, that all our art is a failure. That's why we try again. Uh, you, you, you never finish with a book, you just have to let it go at some stage. But, but that's an example of how close our connections were with some of the overseas fans and writers. Uh, it was a wonderful time to be alive. The other thing we should mention is that we're talking about, sorry, we're talking about written science fiction. That in fact, this group of people, fans in the 1960s, were multimedia fans as far as you could be in those days. So, 2001 movies, those kinds of things. Star Trek on television, <laughs> the, the outer limits on television. Barbarella. Uh, the Barbarella, uh, yeah, that was a movie. Uh, yeah, it's a lot of, um, the, the movies discovered of science fiction, what we had to do is be patient and realise that, well, the movies, the TV is 50 years behind movies and movies are 50 years behind science fiction. You know, we had to get past that scary monsters stage, of which there were some marvellous films made, um, because the beauty of science fiction, as those filmmakers found, was you could actually tell a story but dress it up in a different way and still get your point uh, across. The, the, uh, the film of Bradbury's It Came From Outer Space has one uh, scene where the shape-shifting aliens who have just crashed and want to repair their ship say, we would not harm your bodies, your mind, or my soul, or your soul. Yeah, and I, I, I do believe that those who read a lot of science fiction are not capable of becoming racist because science fiction deals and has dealt historically with other cultures and understanding them 
And I certainly don't know any racist in uh, fandom that I... Apart from Robert Maybe Heinlein. one or two. Yeah, maybe, yeah, Robert Heinlein. There may be a few right-wingers, I don't know. You know. But yes, you are, you are constantly involved with that ha- finding out how other cultures work. And what were you doing in the aware. 60s? Hmm? What was Bill doing in the 60s? Yeah. <laughs> what was I doing in the 60s? Yeah. I was re- but yes, we were... I was still in recovery mode from... Um, um, in the 50s, I was a, like a little lost fan, and, and I found fandom as a refuge from society. And, and, but uh, there's a bit of that left in the 60s, but I started to branch out and, of course, really succeeded towards the end of it when I started publishing my own fanzine. Still within the little cave of um, and, and, and Zappa, we were, we were a close-knit community and we corresponded by fanzines in a bundle and we wrote mailing comments to each other in our own little tiny group. But at least it was coming out in, in, in a lot of ways. And uh, that, but for some, just to cut back a bit, Lee and I have a, a generation in that you're a depression baby as well, aren't you? Yes, yes, yeah. That's right. We're perhaps the only depression babies in the in the in the nineteen thirties in the in in the room. And the thing about the memory of what we've got. There's a few. Yeah. Oh, no, there's, there's a few of you. Okay, okay. The, th- the thing about us is that we grow up in grew up in an era where where the only escapist literature available to us were westerns and detective mm. novels and, uh, and, and, and and the like. Edgar Rice Burroughs. And, 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 and all that great fantasy stuff from earlier in, earlier in the 20th century. But the thing is that, that, in, that in that environment, we desperately needed to catch up with the rest of the world that had... That, that were liberated from all that and had their minds expanded by, by, by space opera. <laughs> and we couldn't get it in Australia. We couldn't get it until the early 60s. Yes. And it took us a while to adjust to that. And uh, that's my experience. Well, I can remember you coming in and, you know, ogling the E.E. E. Smith paperbacks. Absolutely. Oh. Still paperbacks. <laughs> can we... We've talked a little bit about science fiction and writing science fiction can I, and I need to rely on Lee mostly for this to talk about some of the key science fiction fans in Australia in the, around the early 1960s and I'm thinking John Baxter John Foister uh, Bob Smith and uh, John Bankson. John Bankson. Yes. Can you give us some memories of these, what were these people like what stepped them apart that made them science fiction fans uh, the what Set the science fiction fans apart from other pe- other people. Is it didn't matter what your religion was, mm-hmm. whether you were gay or straight, if you had physical handicaps. Uh, if you liked science fiction, you were okay. It was uh, it was a very liberating thing to be part of a group like that. You know, we we never bothered. If you like science fiction, if you could talk science fiction, fine. And if you had other interests, well, fine. You know, uh, it was... Bill's right, it was a refuge. Because Australian culture in the 50s and 60s was... You, you can't believe how restrictive it was. And, and to a some some degree, it remains like science fiction. Australian publishers regarded that as you know kiddie stuff. Penguin still does. 
they don't publish science fiction. You know, they, there's still this snootiness. So, 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 how did you come to meet John Baxter? And say, say, John Baxter and uh, John Hoister. Um, well, John Hoister, I got to meet when John Baxter came down from Sydney to. Uh, I think it was on his honeymoon. He stayed with my wife and I then, and we'd been to a party. How did you meet John Baxter? Of Mervyn Barrett, who was a distinguished local fan at that time, and uh, then. I drove them um, to my place and we unloaded and, and we sat around and we had some coffee and all that. And at one stage, uh, Foyster said to Baxter, why don't we go back to Mervyn's? <laughs> so I went back to Mervyn's. But no, I formed immediate friendships with both of them, uh, particularly John Baxter from Sydney. He is a since very famous overseas but at that time, we were both struggling science fiction writers. And I remember sending, he sent his first short story back to me, for my opinion, and I, I wrote him back saying how it could be improved and, you know, would he like me to, to touch it up a bit for him? And he wrote back saying, well, well, well thanks, but I just uh, sold it to Carnell this morning. <laughs> Chewing on your boot, mate. Yeah. So be, beware all editors, you know, they're, they're only people with opinions and... Uh, if there are any published writers here, they, they may know what it's like to have people come up to them and congratulating them on their latest book and, and, and talking about it, and it's nothing like the book you wrote. Uh, there's as many versions there as there are people who read And that can be very insightful because there's a, the, the, best, the richest part of writing is the, what the unconscious contributes that you're not aware of. And uh, you have people come up to you and say, blah, blah, blah. I, I, I've had a couple of shocks like that because it never occurred to me that that was present in the book. But of course it is. They're unconscious, like, sure. Um, you, 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 mentioned, you mentioned Merv. Yes. Tell us about Merv. You said that uh, John said, John Foster said, let's go back to Merv's place. Who? Oh, Merv and Barrett, not Merv and Merv and Barrett. You like to know about Merv and Barrett? Merman, tell us about... Well, there's two people I want you to talk about for a little while, if you can. Um, uh, John Foister and Mervyn Bint, because they are the source ah. of... Yeah, the reason you're all here today is because of Mervyn Bint. He would totally deny it. But, but uh, he, he had... First at McGill's... This is in the 50s when I used to go in there. Uh, he was on the counter and... Uh, he was the one who liked science fiction and, and he, he had his own little section of very small you just and he would you know people would come in and they would buy this stuff and he'd proselytise to them he would tell them about the Melbourne Science Fiction Club and uh, or, and I suppose he he, he uh, shopped for fans <laughs> but that's how it all started and then when he opened Space Age Books Oh gosh, uh, we were on. That's in the seventies. You'll have to get out of that next year or the year after or something. That's when it exploded because the young people, the students, had discovered science fiction. But no, he helped to organise the first convention. Uh, it wasn't the, the there had there hadn't been a convention before. Oh, 1958. 
56. There was Olympicon. That was after yeah, I both the, the, the Yes. There was 58. 56. There was a one-day convention in yes. and yeah. That's when there were enough members of the Melbourne Science Fiction Club that he had helped establish. And uh, so that, but that's a story for the yeah. 70s, really. So, but the other person who was the driving force behind this is all John Foister. John Foister. was the driving most, force behind everything. Most <laughs> remarkable human being I've ever known. Uh, modest, unassuming with a huge brain capacity and um, heart. Well, um, let me tell you about... He died far too young. But uh, he was my mentor, my closest friend. My, uh, he, he had an amazing ability. The latter part of his professional life was as a facilitator. He had this ability to get a group together and encourage them to function together. Yeah, um, it's his greatest gift, and he was always approachable. All you know, yeah. wonderful person. Can, yeah. can I just run in and just yeah. say yeah. this about John Forster? My memory of John Forster is that every now and again, he would come up to me and said, "Oh, Bill, can you help me with this?" <laughs> and 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 you'd get into it. And you get really keen and you're going and suddenly you find that John's not there anymore and then you're in charge. (laughs) See what I mean? Facilitator. He he always knew the right person for the right child. And of course, in uh, the latter half of his uh, career, he he spent a lot of time in Malaysia um, with groups utilising that that skill. Um, And uh, I remember him saying to me one time, Lee, it's very different being in Malaysia to be in the minority <laughs> I got to know John through ASFR um, tell us what it is are we going to come to that oh, yeah. come to that yeah. um, while I was buying Galaxy and if and F and SF and New Worlds in my local newsagent I didn't know fandom existed until in 1966 when ASFR had been created I saw a little one inch ad of two and a half centimetres ad in the age um, literary supplement talking about a science fiction magazine and so I managed to subscribe for the second issue got in touch with John Bankson who was the editor discovered that he John Forster and Lee had got together at the con I presume in 66 and decided we need to have a, a fanzine that talks about SF in a entertaining way but in a under underneath it all a serious way even though it's going to be entertaining and amusing but not solemn anyhow I got in touch and, and then John Banks and um, after a couple of issues appointed me associate editor which I was for a couple of years <laughs> and um, one of the things he gave me was a stack of of uh, manuscript of reviews written by someone called Bruce Gillespie <laughs> about a writer called Philip K. Dick who I quite liked and I went through all these things and I Put my editorial hat on and went through with a blue pencil, and then yeah, and then I gave them to Bruce. (laughs) And by this stage, ASFR had reached an end of incarnation, I think. And Bruce started SFC, printing some of those issues. But through meeting John, he and I were both at Monash University at at that time, in the in the late sixties, and we put in a bid to edit the Monash University magazine and Cora, and we won it. And so he used to describe this as the best 
professional um, fanzine ever produced because it, even though it was a university student magazine, it was largely a science fiction themed issue that we put out for that year. And uh, I got to know John through ASFR. He was um, very personable, as Lee and Bill have said. I think um, he might have been the driving force in getting ASFR off the ground, but as Bill indicated, he got and let John Bankson and Lee actually run the thing. John certainly contributed to it enormously. But you've got to remember this about the Monash group. That was very influential because this was the first student intake, wasn't it? Or very close to it? No, that was back in 60. Oh, back in the 60s? 1960 was the first student intake. Well, it's the beginning of student student radicalism. And the beginning of... um, a student involvement in a big way in, uh, in and there were a lot of groups that coalesced, you know, for, for to produce Ozicon, the were first world con. And we're talking about the sixties where all this was germinating. And it was those those radical student groups that that, that, that found science fiction as an intellectual refuge. From a whole lot of really nasty baggages that the universities were carrying at that time. Sorry, sorry, you academics, but really. Yeah, at Monash, <laughs> um, Damien Broderick had been the editor of the student newspaper called Lot's Wife, co-editor, and um, I became chief of staff, and um, and that's when I got to know better Damien and then and, uh, John Foister. Mm. But the first convention I went to, I think, we must have been in '68, and. I discovered that there were people out there who actually liked the same things that I liked, science fiction, without thinking I was an idiot or ridiculous. And it was, as been mentioned, a sort of a refuge, but it was a refuge implies that somehow you are cut off and isolated. But in fact, it's a very fecund, invigorating place meeting with fellow enthusiasts about something that's really important. And I think the energy you got from going to an SF convention, meeting other fans, writing and reading fanzines, which I had never heard of before. And so I got the ASFR. Uh, I think Bill started one, uh, and Zappa was producing stuff. Lee occasionally produced his own fanzines. It was a really invigorating time, and it led, I think, the momentum to bidding for the World Con in 75. Um, the only, apart from me, and I was young and I paid no attention, was... The, the germination, all this comes together at the 1966 National Convention, yes. Yes. which was held in the Melbourne Science Fishing Club, which wouldn't have been a room much bigger than this one. Yeah. <laughs> um, with, what, 40-something people? Probably is, no, probably a few more than here, but not many. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, well, coming like that. Lee, what's your... Uh, because out of this um, discussion, serious discussion of a bunch of people who have come together for the first time in, what eight years mm-hmm. to talk comes in enthusiasm. What was it like to be there? Exhilarating. It was um, the, the level of involvement from the audience and the, the speakers uh, was, yeah, it was energy coursing through you that you're actually doing this together um, and, and you're having fun at the same time, which is something that the Sydney group's couldn't seem to conceive that we would have fun about our favourite literature. But yes, it, it, I think the fun came from the mutual acceptance of the whole audience. You know, we, we, we were there because we read science fiction and we loved it. And we, we, we didn't have to... I mean, I don't know what it was like for some of you, but when I was a kid of 
10 or 12, you know, he thinks people are going to the moon. He's crazy, you see. Um, these are the people who never look up. And I, as I told, um, told someone just recently, uh, I turned my back on the creationism at about the age of seven because I knew it was a lot of bunk, you know, that the, there's no mention of the stars and other worlds, which I knew about from encyclopedias. <laughs> uh, and so it, it was it, it just a marvellous feeling. You, you know, I, I don't know if you still get it when you come to conventions. Uh, you, you get it, you know, we're a great speaker, not like bumblers like us. Uh, and and you know, there's an almost electricity in the room. Uh, we 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 here. We believed, and it happened. Hallelujah! Yeah. <laughs> and, and one thing that grew out of that um, feeling was um, not just, as Lee said earlier, we weren't just reading stuff, but we were watching movies and TV, like Twilight Zone. But um, Lee was involved with the Fantasy Film Society being set up. Oh, yes. We wished to meet at a restaurant um, in the basement of a place yeah. in Collins Street. Uh, once a month and watch a film and it could be a um, 16mm print of Jean Cocteau Beauty and the Beast or anything that um, I don't know where the guy who had this amazing library of 16mm films I think he'd been a projectionist and he'd um, somehow accumulated this huge library largely of science fiction and fantasy films that we watched yeah. Well, there were 16 mil. I, I remember the, on Super 8, the, the, the 8 millimetre films, the, the nitrate films, they were bloody dangerous. But, but Paul Stevens used to, used to show these in the. In, 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 in 16 a, millimetre projection, you know. Yeah, yeah but this is. Whirring away. Whirring away. And, and including Super 8 uh, projection as well. Yeah. Uh, but but we, we had them at a lower declared a fire hazard and they, and they, and they, and they shut down the, 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 the film group. The, the, the thing you have to remember is that until the invention of videotape, yeah. the only opportunity you got to see something was on the television when it was broadcast or if you went to the movies. So if you wanted to see anything fantasy or science fiction, um, the fantasy film group was the only place in Melbourne where you were going to find it. Um, and so... To a very large extent, the Melbourne Science Fiction Club existed because the fantasy film group brought in people who liked watching movies and had that be fantasy movies. So we sat there and watched Metropolis in its various forms. Flash Gordon. But, oh, <laughs> so so out, out of this enthusiasm that was generated at the 1966 convention came this suggestion from Lee, I think, that John Banks and Wood edit a magazine called The Australian Science Fiction Review, which has been mentioned already. I just pointed at him because I didn't want to do it. <laughs> what, what was the point of ASFR? Just called ASFR for short. John, the, what was the point? John Bankson had never read science fiction until he got to know me. And I still remember... He, oh, I gave him a couple of books to read, and, you know, and he was a regular visitor at our place up in the Dandenong Hills here. Uh, he used to stay for the weekend, and you know, we'd talk and talk about books because we were both widely read. And uh, he, he was a librarian at the time. 
And he came and he sat down one day and he, he looked very serious. He said, uh, so I asked him, I said, you know, you're very serious today, uh, John, what's the problem? He said, I've, ju I've just read a terrible book and I can't get it out of my head. It was a world of Nalai by Van Vogt. Now, I think as an introduction to science fiction, <laughs> it probably was. But I'd also also get, I also gave him later uh, an Arthur C. Clarke collection, and that that converted him. Uh, I remember saying, "There's a story in there called the Nine Billion Names of God." I said, "You know, just have a look at that." You know, um, because John had had a religious upbringing. It's interesting. Um, you know, so did John Baxter and Damien Broderick. The, the latter well, two. I came from the same small um, Protestant group that John Baxter came from. So yes. That was extraordinary. Yeah. 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 So um, I find that interesting. Uh, Damien never actually became God, but gosh, he worked hard. <laughs> but he worked hard for it. <laughs> Okay, so you, so we've decided that we're going to have a magazine. Yeah. And so you, John and John Forster, sort of stand behind and push John Bankson forward. What we did, uh, I chose Bankson, or I pointed at him, whatever. Uh, what did what did um, Forster write the fanzine? And so the die was cast, and the cast has been dying ever since, <laughs> um, because of his literary background. We wanted. Uh, an old, an adult fanzine that could still be amusing, which I, I, I think we achieved the perfect balance. Um, before Rob came on board, I was uh, John's right-hand man, uh, I shadow editor, I think he called me, um, mm. and uh, and it was a successful blend because John's own writing style for the editorials and the occasional pieces he did and his reply to the letters. You know, he was an urbane and uh, well-read person. Um, we had to wait until the 60s and 70s to get that sort of editor working on science fiction. Um, so I just um, add a bit in here. John Forster at that stage was working at Castles, the publisher, as a, a rep. And Bankson, George Bankson. Bankson was good. Bankson, sorry, John Bankson. And um, George Turner was one of the writers that Castles was publishing. And Bob Sessions was on the editorial side or publishing side in at Castles. And he knew both John Bankson and George Turner, but neither knew the other at that stage. And he introduced him saying, um, he's one of your mob, meaning the science fiction, because he discovered that even though at that stage George Turner had written mainstream novels, he was an ardent SF bus buff and had even, um, I think, written letters of comment in the, in the 30s to some of the US magazines. And so Banks and, and Turner being introduced to each other, John having recently started ASFR, um, inveigled George to do some reviewing. And one of the first reviews he did, um, I'd reviewed um, a Afro-Western novel, The Stars by Destination, in a, an issue of ASFR, and George took upon himself to tear apart my um, <laughs> raving review of this book, which he thought was absolutely terrible, <laughs> and, and made a name for himself as a, a counter-critic. <laughs> I've got a lovely story about Bob Sessions. Can I tell my lovely yeah, story? Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, he, went, he went on to glory at... 
Penguin by proving you could market Australian fiction. Before Bob came there, you know, uh, you couldn't get a whole wall of Australian fiction like you now can. Anyway, uh, I wrote this uh, story for the Alan Marshall Award, which was uh, an award for best unpublished novel, and it won, which surprised me. And the prize money was a thousand dollars in those days, which is a lot of money. And but else. the point was, uh, Nelson's was a Nelson's had an option on it, you see, which was part of the part of the deal with a thousand dollars. So they had first look. I'd always remember the letter from, or phone call or something from Bob saying, look, um, we've decided that look, we can't think of any possible market for this book. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, we're reluctant, you know, but, but, you know, we have to let it go. I said, oh, that's great, now I can sell it to Harper and Row in New York. <laughs> because they'd wanted it, you see. Um, because my, I also sent a copy to my American agent. And I remember at the awards ceremony when... Oh, it was displaced person, by the way. Um, at the awards ceremony, and Bob said... Uh, Lee, when I hand you the cheque, I don't want you to mention it's science fiction. <laughs> That's the climate, and that hasn't oh, he changed. Was, he, was that cons- he was consistent because he knocked back uh, redoing uh, Sea of the Summer only a couple of few, in his last year, last year at Penguin. Yes. He said, oh, no, it just doesn't, so it's too old fashioned. He yes. just didn't want anything to do. Yeah, well, I don't know if he's changed, but uh, the well, book. Is now a history. Uh, it established the young adult label in Australia, and uh, it stayed in print in, in the Penguin edition for 21 years, which is a considerable record for a bit of science fiction in this country. But it was constantly on school syllabuses, you know, because of its. Um, I just set out to write a thriller, but I somehow tapped into the. Um, the zeitgeist. Is Lee suggesting from a commercial publishing perspective um, most publishers in this country and probably around the world, and it's there exclusively in the SF sphere, tended to think there wasn't much of a market for it. So Bob Session actually um, he contributed to ASFR a couple of times. I think he wrote a review and a letter. But in, under his publishing hat, he he was part of the conventional wisdom at the time which didn't understand in fact SF was a breakthrough in a publishing category which of course has now become huge Can I bring us back to ASFR Bill, what are your memories of Australian Science Fiction Review? My memories of Australian Science Fiction Review were as I was awestruck by the by the quality of the literary mm. criticism which came from all over the world yes. by 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 Letter hacks like Franz Rottensteiner and Germany and so forth. Um, James um, Bliss, um, Jack, Philip K. Dick, Dick yes, all, Brian the, all, all the big names internationally from all over the world yeah. were, were were in there contributing to this, and there was nothing like it in America. Almost nothing like this level of literary criticism in science fiction. It was a, um, it's as if. 
that, that primitive writing, that primitive space opera, that stuff with, 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 with zero credibility in the science because, because none of us knew anything about science. We waited to be educated in the 1960s before, before, before we could criticise that sort of stuff. And uh, it was... It, the, 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 that, that was the mind-blowing thing about this. By the way, Rob forgot to mention that for a couple of years he was associate editor no, of that first, yeah. <laughs> that first run of ASFR. There was a second run of it, uh, which somebody might like to talk about. Well, no, we've just about run out of time. Oh. Do either of you, you three, do you have anything things you'd like to comment on before we have to take a question from the audience? Absolutely. One, one thing. I've got my notes for this panel in essay form and I've got a dozen copies left and first come first served on the table when we're finished any closing comments Rob? questions alright questions any questions well not a question the ultimate comment on ASFR was provided by you in a letter of comment you said, do you have to be Samuel R. Delaney to appear in ASFR? <laughs> no, but it helps. <laughs> I remember collating the first issue of ASFR, of uh, Bruce's fanzine. Uh, sorry about that. Um, I was writing my first novel at the time, and I would do a chapter and... and the stencils for the first issue of SF Commentary would be cut on an Olivetti typewriter. Does anyone remember yes. Olivetti typewriter? They cut a dreadful stencil. And they, 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 but it came out, and I used to have the pages stacked in the, the front lounge room. It was at John Bankson's house, if I forget. And I would do my chapter. Oh, wish those days would come back. Mm-hmm. And. and, and Go and collate a few pages. And is that why chapter three in that book is an issue of ASFO? <laughs> no, no, no. So, uh, yes, there's so much to look back on uh, that we built up all this that's happening now. It all comes, as I said at last year's con, you're all our children. You know, uh, except those who were around at the time. And there's a few of them still here, Robin, at the back there. To whom I dedicated my first big anthology to. I said you moved mountains, Robert. Uh, yes, and you did <laughs> for the. <laughs> you moved mountains. One for thing: the... don't look for ASFR on the internet. You will not find it, um, which is one of the great tragedies of uh, Australian fandom. This stuff risks being lost forever, uh, simply because of all of this. The very few copies that exist exist in collections and it's likely to have forgotten by mainstream culture um, unless we can get it loaded up onto the internet and how we do that I do not know just to be uh, well, we have to both Perry and I have been given permission at different times by John Banks to completely reproduce ASMR just each of us has no time to do it but the, the permission's yeah, been given can you Fandom is your resource base, mate. All you've got to do is to say, come and help me, and then just leave them to it when they get interested. Can I I deflect off myself from this point (laughs) and go back to something that Rob said, going back to the reading of the magazine Mm. that you guys were reading at the time. You mentioned that um, you were buying copies of Galaxy, the British versions of them. And I can remember my my father, who's one of the second-generation fans, my father's a 1930 boy, and he was reading a lot of this stuff. Now, the stuff that I remember reading when I first started was the British versions of Astounding and Galaxy and those things. Mm. 
were they direct copies or yeah. in terms of the or were they just they would, would would they take three or four issues and pick the eyes out of them and put them into an issue and then print it in Britain and was that the only thing we were getting here? Yes. The British editions of, 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 of the magazines you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, 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 right. yeah, 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 one of the larger stories in each issue to get it down to the smaller British. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. There was an yeah. only British edition of Astounding yeah. which was large format and slim and that oh, the was the big, part. The, the bit sheet yeah, Astoundings. Yeah. Yeah. I've got a couple of them too. Then there were the British versions of the The ones that straight over were doing. What they normally left out was the Serial. Oh, yes. Oh, all right. Yeah. Okay. And then um, what they just printed, instead of printing it monthly, they were doing them what, quarterly or something like that? No, they, they came out every two months, I think. Yeah. But in fact, um, late in the 50s, Strato published complete issues of Galaxy, 194 pages, okay. of the same as the American one. Right. But earlier they were 160 for memory, which left out one or two novelettes or the serial. Yeah. So were these purely for the Commonwealth? Yeah. yeah, that was it. Yeah. it wasn't, so this was that. This is that whole idea about no, 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 publishing no, at that time. Where no, it's not the Commonwealth. It's that there is in, but because the Commonwealth government, sorry, the Australian government thought that too much money was going overseas. Right. Then they oh, stopped, simply no, stopped Australians from spending American dollars. dollars. Oh, you see, you, I can remember buying those paperbacks back yeah. way back when in the in the sixties, the ones that were yeah. from the sixties. And these were the ones that were published, and they used to say, "No, oh, that's, a, that's another thing." Yeah. 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 Was that part of that? Was it was. That's yeah. a different thing. thing. There's two two things going on. Yep. One is the copyright division between yeah. the Empire, sorry, the Commonwealth, <laughs> and, 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 and the United yeah. States, North yeah. America, and yep. the other one is the embargo upon spending Australian oh, money in, yeah. in, okay. in the right. North I thought that I thought they were one of the same. No, they're no, they're two different strategies. Could I make an important announcement now? You may make an important announcement. Okay. Do we make the announcement? Yes. There's one thing we forgot to mention. That was there was a place in the city called Franklin's, yeah. oh, which had the most amazing. That's an afternoon on its own. Yeah. It had all these old SF magazines, paperbacks, you name it, and it uh, was there for about 20 years. Yeah. yeah. And, and it was in Russell Street. Russell Street. No, no. Lee, you announcement. I don't know how many of you here realise that Bruce Gillespie received a lifetime achievement. Award, very fanzines and, and, and not, many, not many fanzines, and I, and I think fanzine is scarcely worthy of your efforts. I, I think fifty years of consistent publication was worth all the awards in science fiction. You know, it, it's well, a. There's another lifetime. <laughs> <laughs> Standard will give you a quick applause. Oh, <laughs> We and should, counting. We, we should yes. say that SF Commentary under Bruce took the mantle that ASFR started and it's been the most um, extraordinary internationally yeah. regarded publication of SF yeah. Commentary yeah. of Christian ever since. Yeah. 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 Unless anyone's got anything important I have to say. No? no. All right. Thank, you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.